Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's glad. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Easter is one of those Sundays where church planners like myself really look. You know, it's like church planners' dream because there's lots of people and it's wow. We're really doing church. This is kind of neat. There's people here and it's a good thing. So thanks for coming. And it's always fun to be here uh, together. Um, it, we, if if you've not been with us, we've been in the middle of a series from the Book of Galatians in the New Testament. Hey, Ron, would you mind closing those doors? Because that thing's beeping out there, and I, I'm afraid it's going to distract some people. Um, we've been looking at this book, that this letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to, the, to a, uh, a bunch of churches in a region called Galatia in modern-day Turkey. And he's been writing to them because they've moved off of what he calls the gospel back into a, a way of trying to relate to God based upon their, their moral or religious performance. And Paul keeps hammering to them over and over again. Uh, no, it's not that. Uh, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we come to just one verse at the very end of this of this long book. And we're just going to focus in on this verse. It's Galatians 6, verse 15. And it's printed there for you in the insert in your worship folder. will be on the screen behind me. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we encourage that. That's a great thing. Um, so please do that. And we're going to read together. And then I've included a passage from Isaiah 65 and then also one from Revelation 21 just to kind of provide some background to exactly what Paul's getting at in this verse in Galatians 6.15. So let's read together these passages of Scripture uh, as we come to uh, our sermon this morning. Uh, from Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Isaiah, in Isaiah 65.17-25, Isaiah writes of exactly what Paul's talking about when he says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, God says. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cries of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years and a sinner a hundred years old shall be cursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And then from Revelation chapter 21, John at the very end of the scripture writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is God's word. Uh, today is the day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And I want to say very clearly 
If you're new to church, if you're not a Christian, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, was the very son of God. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a political revolutionary. He was the eternal, omnipotent God, creator of the universe, who put human, who put on human flesh and blood and came into the world on a rescue mission. We believe he was born. We believe God was born. We believe God had to learn how to walk and talk. And we believe God died. And we believe that on the third day, God rose from the dead. Now, you take all of that. And you you take that into consideration. And I think the emotions attributed to the women at the tomb on Easter morning by Mark in his gospel, which we read a few minutes ago, are entirely appropriate. Mark says in verse 8, it's there in your call to worship. He says, they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And what's fascinating is, is what, what some of those words mean. When, when, Paul, when, excuse me, when Mark says they were trembling, the word literally there is trauma. That's, that's literally the Greek word. It's the Greek word trauma. And you know what a trauma is. Trauma is a severe emotional shock having a deep and often lasting impact on somebody's life. Uh, it's a, a trauma is an emotional wound that never really goes away. It's, it's kind of always there. It intrudes into your day-to-day life. And, and Mark says they were traumatized. They were trembling. He says, but not only trembling, he says that, that astonishment seized him. And that word astonishment is the, literally, it's literally the Greek word ecstasy. And you know what ecstasy means too. It means to be beside yourself through an overwhelming power or emotion of pleasure. It means uh, being deeply moved or emotionally altered by an experience, just like the drug called ecstasy. And, and then Mark goes on, he says, so fear, or excuse me, trembling and astonishment seized them and they said nothing for they were afraid. And that word afraid is the word phobia. It literally, it's the Greek word phobia. And you know what a phobia, you know what a phobia is? It's an exaggerated fear. I have a, I have a, I have many phobias, but fear of heights, fear of spiders, you know, fear of creepy crawly things, an exaggerated fear. You know, if there's a spider in the house, I act like a girl and get up on the table and tell Ashley to kill it. I do. This is overwhelming, exaggerated fear. And so all three of those words, um, that, that, that Mark is ascribing to these women describe an exaggerated emotional experience, and they're appropriate. I think they're entirely appropriate as, an, as a response to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And it's what I'm praying for in my heart uh, this morning and what I'm praying for in your hearts as well. And, and so we've been talking throughout this series in the book of Galatians about how salvation is, is that the righteousness and the acceptance of God is what we're looking for and that it can't be gained through religious performance or morality. It's a gift. Jesus died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God the Father that should have been poured out on us. Jesus literally died the death we should have died. But he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father's will. In other words, he he never wavered. He never gave into temptation. He not only died the death we should have died, he also lived the life we should have lived. And so Paul writes at another place in the Scriptures, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And last week, we talked about what it means to boast in the cross, that the cross should be at the center of our emotional lives and of our self-understanding. But, but here's the thing. What today teaches us is the cross is not the end of the story. The cross is not even the climax of the story. 
And therefore, it would be an error to think that being a Christian has nothing to do with the kind of person that, that you are, that the gospel could have so little or no practical effect on your life. It's absolutely impossible. In fact, it's a theological heresy. The reformers would always say it this way. They would say we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always produces fruit in, in, in your life. So that's what we want to talk about this morning, but we want to say at the very beginning, but we're not talking about just rolling up your sleeves and getting out there and try, trying harder. There's a difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. There's a difference between moral reformation and heart transformation. And Christianity is, and this is what I've said over and over again, Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. Christianity is about dead people coming to life. We need spiritual power. We need God to come and take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel said in our assurance of pardon. We need to be remade. We don't need just a, a few you know, new habits. We need a new heart. We need a new motivation for obedience for all of life. And there's only one way that happens. There's only one way your heart gets melted, and that's to come face to face with the terrible beauty of Jesus' death in the empty tomb and to have the reality of those events sink down into the very depths of your soul. So you have to get a greater glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You, you have to see him. And to illustrate this, I, I included a little quote there, if you'll see in your outline, by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. And Jeremiah Burroughs was a great Puritan pastor and theologian, and he wrote a sermon called Christ, the Great Wonder of the World. And in that sermon, here's what he said, and I'm just going to read it, but I wanted to include it there so you could have it. He says, this would be a good evidence of your faith. In other words, how do you know you really have faith? How do you know you're a Christian? That's what he's attacking here, okay? This would be a good evidence of your faith. Have you beheld more of God's glory in the face of Christ than in all the world besides? He goes on, he says, I appeal to your consciences. When were your hearts taken with the admiration of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ? There cannot be faith in the heart if the heart has not been taken up with the wonder of Christ so that all the wonders in the world have been darkened in the soul in comparison to Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered at Jesus like that? And if you've never wondered at him, if you've never trembled, if you've never stood mouth wide open at the terrible beauty of the cross, if instead you're bored and unmoved and indifferent, then I want to pose a question to you. Do you know him? I remember a not, a long, quite a while ago, uh, was, I think Abby was a baby, so maybe three or four years ago, Adrian um, Morris, my, my son's friend, was spending the weekend with us, and we pulled out the Prince of Egypt. And we're, Prince of Egypt, you know, that's the Disney version of the, the Exodus. I watched Charlton. The, the, the whole Charlton Heston thing cracks me up. They do it every Easter, you know, it was on TV last night. It's just awesome. But um, but uh, we were watching the Prince of Egypt, and I think I, I, that something about that moves me even more than the old, you know, Ten Commandments. And I remember we came to the scene where, and it's a cartoon, you know, and so Moses goes out into the water, and he puts the staff in the Red Sea, and the waters part, and it's, and the waters come up, and lightning are flashing, and the people are walking through the Red Sea, and, you know, the lightning flashes, and you can see whales swimming. And, and, I, and I'm sitting there watching, and I turn around, and literally, it's the greatest thing. My, it's probably five at the time. Um, both of them uncued at the same time. Both those little five-year-old boys, they're back there going, whoa. And I thought, that's it. I mean, that's it. I mean, have you, you know, whether it's, I mean, have, you ever, have you ever stared at the empty tomb 
and, and at the terrible beauty of the cross, and just the overwhelming thing was, wow. Because you see, that's what we're going after this morning. That's what we're hoping that, that God does in our children and does in us this morning on this day you know, of the resurrection. And so as we come to this text, there's just two things uh, this morning I want us to look at in this, mainly focusing on verse 15, but then pulling in from the other places. Two things. And number one, that's Paul's correction of our wrong ideas about Christianity. We want to take a few minutes and look at how Paul is correcting the wrong ideas we live with about what Christianity is. And then secondly, we want to conclude with Paul's doctrine of the reality of, of true Christianity, of what Christianity really is. So Paul corrects our false understandings, and then he gives us a way of understanding what the true essence of Christianity is. And those are the two things that we want to look at this morning together from this passage. So follow along with me as we begin verse first with Paul's correction of our wrong ideas about Christianity. He begins verse 15 with a familiar refrain. We've seen it before in this book, in this letter he's written to the Galatians. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. He's already said this once. And, and what we've said, and, and because I realize there's a lot of people who are here this morning who haven't been here over the last few months, these are categories Paul's been using throughout this letter. Paul's writing this letter to a group of people who he went on a missionary journey to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these churches. He established converts, brought them in, established them together, put leadership over them, and then went on to the next to the next city to do the same thing. After he left, a group has come in and has infiltrated the churches and is saying things like, unless you're circumcised, unless you follow the law of Moses, unless you, you know, there's all these rules, and unless you keep all of these rules, then you're not really saved. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to do all this other stuff. And so Paul is writing, saying, no, that is not my gospel. And if anybody preaches a gospel, if even an angel from heaven comes and starts preaching a gospel different than the gospel that I have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so Paul uses, he's using these categories, uncircumcision and circumcision, to describe the different philosophies of Christianity that he's battling against. And so Paul is, is using these to critique, and the way we want to say it this morning, both irreligion and religion. He says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count. If uncircumcision, irreligion, if you don't, you know, there's no rules. You know, that doesn't count. You know, religion, circumcision, following all the rules, doing all the things in the law, but that doesn't count either. And what's fascinating to me is that word in this verse translated count. It means, literally, it means to make strong. The King James Version of the Bible, which if you have that, it's really great. It translates it. Where did I go? He translates it, neither availeth anything. It doesn't avail. It doesn't help. It isn't productive. It isn't successful. And Paul's point is going to be that the gospel is something different from both. The gospel is not irreligion, but it's not religion either. And so let's take a look at both of those for just a minute. Paul says, uncircumcision doesn't count. Now, let me try to describe this for you. It describes the typical irreligious person, the person that, that believes in moral relativism. It's, you know, atheist or, or agnostic. But, but it also describes people who might come to church, but who have not, absolutely nothing to do. It has nothing to do with their everyday life. They don't treat the Bible as divine revelation that is authoritative. It's just another holy book. It's, they, you know, they believe in self-made spirituality. What matters is what works for you. You know, obedience is optional as long as it's convenient with your schedule and with your agenda. And Paul says this this form of irreligion, this uncircumcision, it doesn't count. There's no power in it. There's no dynamic of joy and peace and hope. He's saying that can't make you whole. It's not what you were made for. 
And the mistake is that irreligious people tend to emphasize God's love. They say things like, you know, God accepts everybody. But typically, it's a distortion of God's love. God is a God of love. It's true, but he's also a God that is holy. Because he's holy, there's an obedience that is required of us in order to be in relationship with him. And the irony is, is that the true God is more loving than the relativistic God who can just accept anybody because the true God is so loving that he acted by sending his son into the world to pay the debt of our sins so that we could be in relationship with him. He's more loving because he overcame the demands of his holiness by sending his son, his treasured possession, to die upon the cross to save us from our sins. But you see, Paul says uncircumcision doesn't count. But he says neither does circumcision. Circumcision doesn't count either. You know, and this describes a typically religious person, very devoted. At church, every time the doors open, they give their money to Christian causes and are willing to sacrifice. They follow the rules. They obey the law. But it's more than that. Paul has said to us over and over again, this person relies upon the law. In other words, their sense of love worthiness comes from being good. And all of their obedience isn't really about loving God or loving other people. It's self-love. It's about building a spiritual resume. And Paul says, Paul says that, that, that doesn't count either. Now, there's no power. You know, a religious person may do the right things, but with wrong motivations. And a lot of times there's no dynamic of deep inner joy and peace. And I um, last a couple of Sundays ago, whenever it was that Tiger made that putt on 18, did anybody see that? Um, we had been playing baseball that afternoon and we were in Beef O'Brady's and there was a group of people sitting next to us and he made the putt and they were screaming and I started to talk to them and they're like, yeah, well, we got here late. You know, I was, they were obviously very excited and very sad that they had missed part of the, the thing and and I was just saying, so where have you guys been? Well, we've been in church. And I said, and it's one of those things. I said, well, man, y'all need to cut that Sunday night church nonsense out. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, that was bad. And um, and one of the guys, one of the guys at the table literally, excuse me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. I was joking. I'm sorry. The backpedaling begins. My bad scowled on me. I thought, oh gosh, this guy doesn't like me. It was very awkward for the whole, I was trying to make conversation from then on. It just, you know, I've been a pastor for 25 years, son. You know, I thought, oh man, I'm in trouble. I'm a pastor too, believe it or not. I know you probably think, man, can't believe anybody goes to his church. But, you know, I started to think, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, there just, there tends to be, where's the joy, the deep, you know, peace. I was just kidding. I was, I mean, I'm all about church. You know, it's my whole life. I thought, holy smokes. You know, religious people tend to get angry and self-righteous because they think God owes them for all their hard work. And it never seems to work out that way. And and what Paul is saying is, is that religion can't make you whole. It's not what you've been made for either. You see, religious people tend to emphasize the holiness of God, but it's a distortion of God's holiness. God's demanding and strict and severe But the irony is, I mean, again, here's the irony. The irony is the true God is more holy than the moralistic God because he demands an obedience that is greater than any we could produce on our own. See, a a religious person really believes that they can can meet the requirements. The true God is more holy because he demands something that is so deep, an obedience that is so deep that it's not possible that we could ever meet the requirements. And so here's what this means. What Paul is saying to us is he's saying that the gospel is different from both irreligion and religion. It's a third way. The gospel, 
the good news of what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's been laboring to get into the Galatians. It isn't religion. It's not, it isn't religion. Religion says, you know, believe in Jesus, obey the rules, and then you'll be saved. The gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel says, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, and then you'll obey the rules. But it's not irreligion either. We don't, we don't, you know, we, the gospel isn't, you know, I don't have to obey anybody. You know, the gospel is the exact opposite in the gospel. We do nothing. We gain everything. We do anything for him. I mean, do you see that? It's not it's not religion. The gospel is not religion. We don't obey to earn God's love and favor. The gospel says that if we believe in Jesus then we're counted righteous. We have God's acceptance. But it's Jesus's obedience that has won that for us and not ours. But the gospel isn't irreligion either. You know, it, we don't walk around saying, well, then you know what? Great. I don't I can do whatever I want to No, You know, the gospel is the exact opposite. We do nothing. We gain everything. We do anything. Only the gospel counts. That's what Paul's saying. That irreligion and religion rob people of spiritual power. But the truth of Easter can give you a new heart and can produce a whole new motivation for obedience. If we put all the stress on God's love, on how he accepts and includes everybody, then when I think of my salvation, I think I'm saved because God accepts everyone. But you see, what's, what's wrong with that is that doesn't move me to tears. There's no joy. There's, there's no melted heart in that. God, God loves me no matter what I do. But, you know, on the other side, if we think God of, you know, God is mainly holy and mainly demanding and mainly, mainly strict and severe, then, you know, I'm saved by living morally according to his righteous standards. And there's no joy and no tears and no melted heart there either because I'm a good person. Of course I'm a Christian. I've worked hard to be good. I've earned it. And both rob people of spiritual power. And Paul is correcting the different ways we can distort the truth of the gospel, turning it either into irreligion or religion. And the two misconceptions are this, that Christianity is about what we do or don't do and not about what God has done in time and history to save us. And that being a Christian is primarily about external ritual and ceremony and not something inward and spiritual. So the distortion is that it's about me, not God, and it's external moral conformity without deep heart transformation. And Paul says it's the exact opposite. That Christianity is about what is not about what we do or don't do. It's about what God has done for us and what God has done in us. And to get at this, if you look there in verse 15, he, he uses this phrase, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. And here's the phrase, but a new creation. The gospel's a new creation. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's getting at what God has done for us, what God has done in us through this resurrection that comes through, is bringing a new creation. What God? So let's just talk for a minute about what God has done for us. Um, my, fam- my favorite quote, my favorite way of illustrating this is if you're familiar with the book or if you've seen the movie, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll know that, that the, the tension in the story is, is that Edmund, one of the four children who has come to Narnia, has acted treacherously. And there is deep magic. The way I love C.S. Lewis, he says there's deep magic from the dawn of time that, that is in play and that says that if ever there is a traitor that is found, that he is guilty, you know, he is guilty and his blood must be shed. And you remember, there's, the, you know, so the white witch comes and the white witch comes to claim Edmund and she's going to lay Edmund on the stone table and kill him. 
And, and instead of that, Aslan, who is the king of Narnia, strikes a deal with the White Witch, and he offers himself in the place of Edmund to the children's absolute shock and horror. And the great king, Aslan, is laid on the stone table and is killed in Edmund's place. And there's a scene where Lucy and Susan are there and they're weeping over over Aslan and they cannot believe what has happened. And, and, and yet they turn away for just a moment. And in the moment they turn away, there's a rumble uh, and, and the, the earth kind of shakes and they turn back and the stone table has been cracked in two and Aslan is not there. And then all of a sudden he comes up over the little thing. The movie's really dramatic and there's like this light shining behind him. And there he is. And they, and they say, how did this happen? I mean, you, we, you, were, you were just you were there. How is it that you're standing before us now? And, and, I, and the way that C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it in the book is absolutely just remarkable. And in the book, Aslan speaks to the girls and he says it this way. He says, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. And here it is, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Now, C.S. Lewis is brilliant. And he's making a very deep, a very significant point in that phrase. The scripture teaches that death came into the world through humanity's sin and rebellion. In other words, before sin, there was no death. You look at our world and you see all of the death and disease and suffering and pain, but behind it is a more fundamental problem. And that problem is our sin and rebellion. Sin leads to death. Death has come through sin. But what if one who knew no sin submitted himself to death. If the punishment for sin is death, then what would happen if one who was without sin went into death? What would happen to death then? C.S. Lewis's answer is it would be destroyed. He says it would start to work backwards. He lives. We just sang it a minute ago. He lives. Why? That death may die. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. You see, we're guilty. We're guilty. Tried in the courtroom of heaven, we're guilty. By dying, but by dying for our sins on the cross, Jesus has dealt with our guilt. He's taken our sins upon himself. And the wrath of God came down upon him that we might be forgiven. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father that we might be counted righteous in him. But the, but the reality is, is we're not only guilty, we're also broken. We're broken. We're fractured. Our world is splitting apart. And by submitting himself to death and being raised to life on Easter, Jesus has overcome not just the guilt of our sin, but the curse of sin also. And we can be whole. He has ascended into heaven and has sent the spirit into our hearts to make us new. And that's why I chose these passages from Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21. It's to flesh out the expectations and the promises of Scripture that the prophet Isaiah says. And you can look there that ultimately the salvation of God's people would be a creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And, and he's saying it in a language that's trying to capture that it will be all that our hearts long for. You won't hear the sound of weeping and distress. It'll be a place of celebration and joy. There'll be no funerals for little babies there. We will no longer labor in vain. The curse will be removed. There will be no more famine or hunger. Every hostility will be removed. The wolf and the lion will graze together. There'll be no more war, no more hatred, no more envy. We'll love one another the way we should, and life will finally be what it was meant to be. That's what Isaiah is saying. And at the very end of our scriptures in Revelation 21, John echoes the language of Isaiah, and he says that in the new heavens and the new earth that's coming down, God will dwell with us again. And I say it this way, and it's funny, but it really, you know, we'll be naked people running around in a garden talking to God face to face again. 
Because that's what we were made for. And he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Be just a little longer. And there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. For the life we know now, full of sadness and suffering, will pass away. And all things will be made new. And maybe Ezekiel says it best in Ezekiel 36.25, which was in your worship folder too. He says, I mean, this, this blows my mind. He says, and they will say, of all that God has done, he says, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. See, that's it. I mean, that, that's it. In Jesus, God is taking us back to the garden. He's undoing all that's gone wrong. When Jesus was raised on the third day, a whole new world was born. That's what we believe. On that Sunday morning when those women went to the tomb and he was not there, a whole new world has been born. Everything sad is coming untrue. Death indeed has begun to work backwards. And this new world is on the way. And if you look hard enough, you can see little glimpses of it even now. And and if your faith is in Jesus, then when he saves you, it means that he has rescued you from this world and brought you into the new creation. Because, Because he lives, we will live too on the other side of death. That's the promise. And I know some of you very, or, you know, are burying loved ones. That's the promise. Because he lives, we will live too. But Paul says we've been raised with Christ. He says we're already, I, you know, I can't wrap my mind around this. He says we are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's so sure, Paul speaks of it as a present reality. We're there with him right now. And here's what I want to say. If you claim to be a Christian, then you claim to have been born again into this new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And I just, I sit with that and I think, you know what? This is so much bigger than the way I was talked to about this. It's bigger than making a prayer, signing a card or praying a prayer or walking an aisle or making a New Year's resolution. It's a radical spiritual transformation at the very core of your life, a new life, new motivations, new goals, new practices. One life has come to an end and a new life has begun. That's what it means to be a Christian and it puts you at odds with the culture around you. And I have to say all of that because living in this day and time, in this culture, we have all in one way or another been inoculated against true Christianity. And you know what that means, don't you? It means we've been exposed to a mild strain of Christianity that has left left us immune to the real thing. And there are all kinds of ways that we water down the magnitude of what Paul is saying, and I don't want us to do that. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. What God is doing is nothing. What God is doing in our world, what God is doing in us, is nothing less than a new creation. That's what today's about. (laughs) Just one way of, of interacting with this, Dallas Willard Who's a, who's a philosophy professor at USC, he, write, he, he ra- writes reacting to a bumper sticker. You know, the bumper, if you have this on your car, it's one of these things, you know, open, you know, open foot, insert, you know, open mouth, insert foot. But I'm going to risk it, you know. And if you do, come talk to me and we'll figure it out later. But, you know, have you seen, the, you know, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And he's interacting with that and he says, he writes, you know, what the slogan really conveys is that forgiveness alone is what Christianity is all about, what is genuinely essential to it. It says that you can have faith in Christ That brings forgiveness, while in every other respect, your life is no different from that of others who have no faith in Christ at all. And he says that's absolutely impossible. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, then the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in you. The spiritual power we need 
has come into our lives because he died and was raised again and ascended into heaven. He sent his spirit into our hearts. And if you think of all the popular mythologies that are that are, you know, that we teach our that we read to our children and all of the stories that we've grown to love throughout our lives, whether it be Cinderella, who is turned from a, you know, a pauper and is given a beautiful gown and whisked away to the to the ball or the story of the frog that's turned into the prince or the Wizard of Oz and the journey that they take and the lion finally finds his courage and the scarecrow gets his brains and the, the tin man gets his heart. That these stories are so imprinted upon our psyches because they tell us something about what our hearts know they need. Our hearts know they need to be rescued from themselves. We need to be transformed. We need not just new habits. Something inside of us tells us we need to be made new. And that's exactly what Paul says Jesus is doing in the gospel. Circumcision doesn't count. Uncircumcision doesn't count. What, what Jesus is doing and what we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday is he's bringing a new creation. Now, just a couple of things as we close. Applications. First, self-examination. Is the resurrection a life of Jesus pulsating through your life? Let me just ask that. I mean, if what it means to be a Christian is that you claim to have been born again into this new creation that God is bringing, is the resurrection life of Jesus Christ pulsating through your life? Application number two, just a, just a word of encouragement. Today is a day of hope that no matter what your struggles may, with sin may be, no matter how desperate you may feel, no matter what sadness might overtake you, it cannot be greater than his power to rescue you. And here's how you know, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Okay, the Baptist in me. Amen. Again, I see, I remember I have to train, right? So training session, okay, when the preacher says amen, and it's like, you know, it's the amen with the question mark on the end of it, amen, amen. So let's do that again. This is important. Interaction. Today is a day of hope. I'm going to say it all again. No matter what your struggles with sin might be, no matter how desperate you might feel, and no matter what sadness might overtake you, it cannot be greater than his power to rescue you. And the reason you know that is, the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive. Ready? Amen? Thank you. All right. And then thirdly, I need to know you're rejoicing in this stuff, okay? Because then I... Anyway, thirdly, so an application of self-examination, an application for encouragement, but thirdly, an application for mission, if this is truly... If this is truly what God says he's doing and what Paul understands, all this stuff about the new creation, then can you see how we've got some work to do? The new world is on its way. And we are those who participate in that world even as we live in a world that is passing away. And that gives us a mission. The empty tomb is the vindication of God over all of our distortions of what, of what we think Christianity might be and it is the vindication of what the true reality of what it means to be a Christian is. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. And so let's pray that together this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are as liable as any to water down, um, to come up with philosophies and theologies that explain our lives rather than explaining our lives in light of the truth of your scripture. And so I pray you help us and give us courage that if there's a need for self-examination on this day where we celebrate the resurrection, if there's a need for self-examination and to say, you know, where is the new creation? That you would give us courage to look into our lives and not be fearful where we, where, where we have questions and doubts. 
I pray that you would encourage us this morning on this day where we celebrate the empty tomb, that you are indeed mighty to save and that no matter what discouragement or despair we might be prone to, no matter what temptations might befall us, no matter what sadness might have overtaken us just even in the last few days, that none of it is greater than your power to save and that you would encourage our hearts. And I pray that you would come and make us wise and give us courage that we would participate with you to see the new world that you so long to come, that we would see it come in our families, in our church, in our city, in our world. May we not rest until we can see with John the new heavens and the new earth coming down, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. May we not rest until every tear is wiped away and death is no more and sadness and pain are gone forever until all things have been made new. Oh, Jesus, come. We just we echo John's words. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And do these things in our hearts and in our lives for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. It's, uh, this is our first Easter service. Uh, won't be the last. Hopefully we'll be here for the next 40 years doing this. But thanks for being with us. And I pray, I hope you have a great day with your families. I pray that today would be a day. Uh, where you you stare at the beauty, the terrible beauty of the cross and wonder at Jesus and that it would drown away every sadness and every sorrow and every discouragement and every despair. Today will be a day of hope and joy and peace for you. And if your faith is in Christ, then as you gaze at the cross and as you consider the empty tomb, the implication that is obvious and undeniable is that if your faith is in Jesus, then he is for you. That all of his power to save is at your disposal. And that's the words that you hear in the benediction as I speak this promise over you. So receive the benediction today on the day that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you today and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.